In most cases, you think of leadership as, as power, but I think it's really about building partnerships. Facilitative mm -hmm. leadership is leadership in partnership with others. How do I bring that together and kind of change that paradigm where we think of it just being top down? Hello, and welcome to Voices from the Village, a podcast from the Wyoming Early Childhood Professional Learning Collaborative. It is often said that it takes a village to raise a child. Wyoming Early Childhood Educators, you are an important part of that village, and we have created this podcast for you. We hope to invigorate and inspire your work by sharing great ideas on important topics from experts and colleagues in the field. I'm your host, Nikki Baldwin, and today I am thrilled to welcome our guest, Debbie Lee Keenan. I was introduced to Debbie's work a few years ago when a colleague of mine spent a day in a training with her at the NAUIC Professional Learning Institute in Long Beach, California. Her excitement after that experience and the evening we spent discussing what she learned led me to attend one of Debbie's other presentations, which then led me to look for and read her books. Debbie has spent many years as an early childhood program director and university teacher. She is a prolific author and an expert on early childhood leadership, family engagement, and anti-bias education, among many other things. Her expertise in leading anti-bias early childhood programs is what connected me with her this summer. For those of you listening, Debbie is currently presenting an amazing series of ECHO in early childhood education sessions for Wyoming, and she was recently the keynote at the Wyoming State Cowboy Conference. These sessions and her keynote can all still be accessed. Just contact your professional learning facilitator for more information. One thing I've learned about Debbie in our conversations this fall is that she is not just an expert and leader in our field, but she is one of the most down-to-earth humans I have ever met. Debbie's knowledge comes wrapped in this amazing package of practicality, bravery, and humility. And honestly, I just keep finding ways to have conversations with her as often as possible. So welcome, Debbie. I'm so glad you're here with me today. Thanks, Nikki. What a lovely introduction. I'll have to say it's a mutual admiration society. As I've gotten to know you, I've been telling my friends and colleagues about, I'm doing this amazing work in Wyoming. I've actually just driven through the state, have not been there in person, but now look forward <laughs> one day to do that post-pandemic to meet you in person. Uh, but I've really enjoyed um, diving deeper and working with one group of uh, one community of early childhood educators and having this opportunity to do this over time. So thank you. Yeah. Oh, well, great. It's good. This is going to be a good time today. We have a lot to cover. In fact, <clears throat> there are so many potential topics we could cover. Uh, we decided to narrow our conversation though, you and I in conversation to focus a little bit more on early childhood leaders. Although just let me say to anyone else listening that all of these principles are great to practice in any any part of the field that you're in. So if you're in a classroom, uh, if you run your own family home child care program or center, um, these are things that will apply to you as well. Um, but Debbie, this is a podcast about professional learning and for educators. So I wanted to start off and have you tell us a little bit about you as a learner and maybe share an experience you've had with professional learning that has impacted you. Thanks, Nikki. Yeah. Um I consider myself a lifelong learner, and um, one anecdote stands out um, when I was the director of the Elliott Pearson Children's School, uh, which was a lab, sc a lab school part of Tufts University. Um, and the story, the anecdote, is that 
um, in February of this particular year, I had brought into the community this family diversity exhibit that had photographs and had little descriptions. It actually was traveling around the country at that point. Um, but I was really excited. We had an anti-bias mission and uh, inclusive community. So we did this big thing in February. It was displayed all over. Uh, and we had a big celebration. And probably over, you know, 300 people came. Wow. Okay. Fast forward June. It's the end of my the school year. And a family, mm-hmm. one of my families, who had three children go through the school, um, asked to set up an appointment, uh, wanted to come see me. And, uh, of course, I'm thinking, oh, um, they're, they're going to thank me <laughs> for what a great experience they had with their three, mm-hmm. three children going through the school. So um, comes this day, uh, they came, they came in, we had our appointment. And of course, they did thank me. Um, and then um, they went on to say, um, do you remember that diverse family exhibit you did last February? I said, yes. Uh, well, we didn't come to the breakfast. And I said, oh, uh, why not? Um, there were so many people, you know, I might not have, I didn't realize that, but uh, why didn't, why couldn't, why didn't you come? And they said, well, actually, uh, same-sex families, uh, we're not comfortable with that, and it's actually against our religion. Um, and I paused, and I said, oh, um, you know, we have same-sex families in our program, and of course, in the world. Um, and then I said, I wish you had come in earlier and told me this. And they said, would you have done anything differently? I paused and thought, well, no, I wouldn't have canceled the exhibit. Um, but I said, so I said that and I told them why, you know, that this is part of our commitment and mission. And then, um, but I thanked them very much for coming in to share with me. I felt good that they had felt comfortable to come in and tell me this after having known me for many, many years. Sure. Um, and This conversation, though, echoed in my mind long after it was over. Not should we have had that exhibit, but rather, did I have done anything differently? Did I miss not taking in everyone's viewpoints? Were my own values and um, assumptions coloring how I approached it? Could I have planned better for this? Um, And I realized that I was in a situation where I could not make everyone happy. And certainly earlier in my career, I would have wanted to fix this. Mm-hmm. And I also thought about why did this family come to see me in the first place, to share this with me? Why did they share this sure. with me at the end of the year as they're leaving? Sure. They, as I said, they had three children in the school. They loved the school. Um, but I realized they were having their own disequilibrium. And the tension between their own beliefs and their love for the school, being part of an anti-bias community. Uh, And even while they were uncomfortable, they stuck with us. Mm -hmm. This family and I are still very good friends. Sure. Um, And so what did I learn from this and why I say it's so powerful is that you never stop learning, that um, I try to be less judgmental in thinking about people I disagree with, Um, And my goal always is to find common ground, but I also can accept that sometimes this won't happen. And I'm Mm -hmm. at peace agreeing to disagree. It's how we go about this process of trying not to be judgmental and allowing people to have their own thoughts, yet at the same time negotiate this kind of messiness 
So yeah. that's what stands out for me when you, when, you, when you ask that question. Well, that brings up an interesting uh, point that I wanted to talk to you about. And um, it comes from a story, you shared a story in the leading anti-bias early childhood programs book that you've authored that um, I think you're making a really similar point. And it really touched me when I read it. And you were talking about early in your career, a parent came to you and said, oh, you said it was your, one of your first jobs as a preschool teacher. The parent said, I don't want my child to play with those black dolls in the dramatic play corner. She may grow up and marry a black person. And then you said, I remember feeling very angry with this parent. In my mind and heart, I called him a racist. My job was to save the child. I was very indignant and radical about it. 40 years later, when I hear the same comments, I have a very different approach. I ask myself, where is this person coming from? Why do they feel that way? I try to dialogue. My goal is to learn from each person, to listen, be non-judgmental. Nothing is all black and white. Life is gray. Mm. I love that quote. And uh, it was one of the first things when I read the book that really drew me into this book. And maybe can you just tell me what, what led you to grow in that way? What helped change your thinking about that in your career? Well, uh, I guess I think part of it is, I have to just say, just experience. Sure. <laughs> having, uh, living your, having my own as a third generation Chinese American, having experienced different types of bias um, and kindness throughout my life. Um, and I think, it is about realizing I can't force change as much as I want uh, a revolution to happen. And certainly sure. in my, you know, in my teens and twenties felt that at a time when I was, uh, you know, in the sixties, let's put it that way. Sure. That, um, it was really, you know, I, I, I was passionate. I was radical about that. And it's not that I'm not passionate now, but I realize I can't force change to happen. I mean, it's also grounded in early childhood, right? Understanding constructivist theory that children learn by uh, forming their own knowledge, creating their own knowledge. And I mm -hmm. believe adults do that also. I see a lot of parallels between guiding adults and guiding children. So I think part of that is learning that and realizing that, that I can't force it to happen but I, the more I can listen and try to be non-judgmental, at the same time, it doesn't mean anything goes. I mean, sometimes people sure. confuse that when, I, when I'm talking about this, that, oh, anti-bias means we accept everyone, everything is fine. And we do want to embrace differences, but that includes differences of opinion, but there are also, you know, your bottom lines, the, our ethical um, uh, beliefs and values that are actually part of right our NAAYC um, uh, rights that we agree to being an early childhood educator so yes that makes a lot of sense and I think we'll we will come back and touch on a little bit more because I love what you have to say about conflict and it's related but I think um, before we do that I would like to dig a little bit more just into um your history and just learning a little bit more about you. One of the things I've noticed it, in conversations with us together about where to start, conversations about um, having leading anti-bias programs and in your books for leaders so and for anti-bias, leading anti-bias programs, you will start with identity. It's this uh, foundational place where you begin. I find that really compelling. And I was just wondering to start us off thinking about identity can you just tell us a little bit more about how your identity has really shaped your work? 
Right. So I mentioned I'm a third generation Chinese American and uh, grew up. I'm from New York City um, originally. And I went to schools in New York. But I think one of the first uh, significant uh, awakenings for me was actually when we moved from New York City to the suburbs of New Jersey. Um, and my family decided to do that, thinking it would be a better education. Mm -hmm. And I remember, uh, I think I was probably around eight, um, going to a new school and on the playground, the first, um, you know, waiting before school started on the playground, someone came up to me and said, last year we had a Mexican. What do we have this year? And what I remember is no one on the playground said anything, not the teachers, not the playground monitors, not any of the kids. Everyone just stared at me. Mm -hmm. And I remember feeling then. I my mom actually was also uh, a, was a, a teacher. So, mm -hmm. uh, but I said to myself then, I'm going to be a teacher when I grow up, and I'm not going to let anyone feel the way I did at that point. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I'm remembering that feeling of being othered. Um, of course, I didn't verbalize it all that way when you're eight. But when sure. I look back with your question, you asked me what started it. That's what stands out in my mind. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, you all of our experiences growing up, what I think about identity is everything becomes a part of your identity, both your personal identity and your social identity. But I think anti-bias work really is grounded in understanding social identity, how we connect to all the group identities in society. Yeah. Um, so I also, my last name is Lee Keenan. So I'm the Lee. My husband is the Keenan. He's Irish American. So, and we have two adult biracial children. So finding communities that would support my parenting, raising my children was also an important factor in where we lived, having experiences as a parent, how my children experienced growing up. Um, and now I have three uh, mixed race granddaughters. We have uh, mm -hmm. one of them as a Brazilian father, one has an Indian father, uh, grandfather. So, I mean, it's, we really have that uh, yeah, multiracial family. So uh -huh. my personal experiences, I think, really intersected with my professional experiences and my drive then to decide I'm going to bring this anti-bias equity lens into everything that I do. So mm -hmm. it provided me, you know, when I searched for jobs, I always looked for community. So I've worked in very diverse communities. Um, and uh, I think in terms of my director experience, when I, event when I became the director of the Elliott Pearson Children's School at Tufts University, that's where I kind of, because all before that, the one of the 20 years before we're kind of in, in the classroom and as uh -huh. teacher thinking about that. And I had done some higher ed work at university of Massachusetts, but it was, I think at Tufts where I had the, uh, at, at this particular lab school, they were really well known for their inclusion of uh, children with disabilities, mm -hmm. but they had not taken that idea to think about all types of differences. And I think that was the significant piece that by listening to the new community, when I got that job, listening to what was going on, to me, I realized the next step, they need to take that and we need to think about that. What does that mean if we looked at all types of differences, not just yeah. ability differences? So yeah. having that opportunity, I think, 
also led me over the 20 years there to kind of think about what is the role of a leader leading with an equity lens, which led to uh, having opportunities to uh, share some of this. Sure. That's amazing. And there's just another piece that you share in the Leading Anti-Bias book that I think relates that I I just wanted to point out as well. Um, you said, there was a period when I felt like I did not belong anywhere. Mm. And these feelings motivated you to create communities that celebrate differences. And I, when I <clears throat> read that, I was really touched by that. And I think especially I can, you know, just the time that I've spent with you, sort of at your core, you are about including everyone so that no one has to feel that. Right. Yes. Yeah. And, and that's funny. Uh, I, I had an opportunity to travel. Uh, as I said, I was I'm third generation, but so I was born here. And my first time traveling overseas to uh, was to Taiwan, actually, because we did have a connection with uh, the, as an American citizen, I couldn't go to uh, mainland China at that point. And the mm -hmm. one that was in my teens, and the one thing I learned from that was that here I thought, oh, I'm, I was dealing with my own identity. And I said, oh, I'm going to go to Taiwan with a lot of Chinese people. I'll feel like at home. But it was interesting. The one thing I learned there, too, I didn't feel as at home either. I was different there. Sure. So I came back feeling, well, I didn't get all that I wanted there. And also I felt different here. Uh -huh. um, yeah. So I think that's, yeah, I think that's where that comes from. The personal piece that drives your, how you can tie that to your uh, professional life. And the other piece I think I often say is that we carry all of this on our shoulders. We carry the ghosts on our shoulders wherever we go our background, these stories, these experiences, sometimes it's unconscious. You don't even remember it, but it comes sure. out in different ways. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the key, right? That's why we need to all be able to reflect on our identity and we can start to recognize um, how it might be impacting us. Right. Um, I love that that's a, a really important place we all need to start. It's Why do you think it's especially important for early childhood leaders to think about their identity? Because the leader's role is to set the tone and we model what's mm -hmm. good, what we want to happen in the rest of our program. So we're modeling for our staff, our teachers, our families. And so if we talk about how our identity has influenced us, it will help our teachers and families feel comfortable doing that too. So that story about the diverse family exhibit that we started with in the beginning, uh -huh. um, that happened in my office, right? As, as a, the leader with this family, sure. I share that at the first staff meeting to share with everyone. I mean, it was something you might've been embarrassed to share, but I felt it was, a, I really had a feel, and I think at that point I hadn't worked it all through, but I sure. knew I wanted to share the, that's, you know, the family had come in and I felt criticized, but, you know, sure. but then I'm, I'm struggling with this. I'm learning with this. What do you all think? So I wanted to share my learning experience about that with my staff. Um, I think it also ties into the identity for me about uh, the other message I think I got growing up is being uh, a peacemaker. You know, sure. don't rock the boat. And it's mm -hmm. kind of ironic because my kids are, if they hear this podcast, they'll say, Mom, you were never a typical Chinese person. You were always loud. You were always talking <laughs> out. You were always enthusiastic. And they would say, all our other friends, are, their parents are just quiet. <laughs> Don't rock the boat. <laughs> so, But anyway, even though I didn't look like that with my kids, I did feel that inside. So mm -hmm. I really had a struggle. That's another learning thing for me, was that mm -hmm. really to feel comfortable with disequilibrium 
and conflict and not I feel it's okay to kind of overcome the um, the cultural pressure not to do that growing up. So. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, well, let's do talk about that. This is a good place to talk a little bit about your wisdom around conflict that has really been, that's really in, influenced my thinking. Um, you've really, you embrace it. You talk about conflict as opportunities for growth um, in ways that I think are really powerful. And, and so can you just, you know, for our listeners, why is, what's, the power in conflict and why have you embraced it? And what does that even mean to you that conflict is something that we don't have to avoid? Well, I think back to um, Piaget, right? And that what he says about disequilibrium and that that's when children learn, right? We fall, mm -hmm. When we fall down, when we make, make mistakes, we get up and we try to learn from this. And again, I think we learn that in school. Um, we knew that we know that's how children learn. But I think it's just much harder as adults to feel comfortable about embracing not knowing the answer, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> feeling yes. the tension, the disequilibrium of feeling uh, the, the discomfort. A lot of it's about discomfort, not knowing and I'm supposed to know when I'm a teacher, when I'm a leader. Yes. Right? It's not okay to make, I mean, some of us, it's not okay to make mistakes. We know with kids it's okay, but we yep. don't give ourselves as adults that permission. Yeah. Um, so I think that to me is a lot of what this conflict piece embraces. The other piece is this disequilibrium is good, that yeah. it's okay to make mistakes, that we can learn from that. As a matter of fact, that's when we learn the most. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think that's uh, one of the key pieces about that. I was going to also talk about embracing complexity, which I think is also a part of conflict because, mm -hmm. right, that in conflict, the reason we're afraid of conflict is we want to right or wrong. We don't want to make mistakes, right? Sure. So the idea of embracing complexity, which is kind of hand in hand with that, is that yeah. um, it's okay to have multiple viewpoints, multiple mm -hmm. perspectives, not using either or dichotomous thinking, but using yeah. and it's this and that we can yes. hold both of these ideas at the same time. Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the best things we can do to ch for children, help them understand that it can be this and this. It doesn't have to be this or that. Yes. Um, but again, I always think it's harder. It's easier for us to do with kids than with adults. I agree. There's another concept that you share in both books. And I, I don't think I've done a good introduction of the two books I'm referencing. So I'm going to pause and do that really quick. Um, for our listeners, these are two really influential books in my career, and they really are informing the work of the Professional Learning Collaborative that Debbie has written. So I want to share these titles with you. Um, the first is Leading Anti-Bias Early Childhood Programs, A Guide for Change. And she co-authored that um, with her colleagues, Louise German Sparks and John Nimmo. And then the second book is From Survive to Thrive, A Director's Guide for Leading an Early Childhood Program. And Debbie wrote that with Iris Chin Pont. Is it Pont? Ponte. Ponte. Ponte, sorry. Okay. And so, um, and both those, but they really link to each other so well. That's one of the real strengths from those books. Um, so I wanted to share that with you, but there's an idea that's in both books of something called The Third Space creating the third space. And I wondered if you could talk about what that means. Yeah. The third space is a kind is an intellectual and emotional space where people from different viewpoints 
can come together to try to find common ground. And uh, we're not the first persons to coin that term, and third space has been used in many different settings. But how we think about it is a way to come together and to learn from each other. Mm-hmm. So we have a specific strategy we call the three A's, acknowledge, ask, and adapt. So acknowledge is when there's a conflict, when there's, um, and sometimes it's a cultural conflict. It could be a, cult, a conflict between the school and home where the child's caught in the middle. It could be a conflict between two staff members. It could be a conflict between two family members. Uh-huh. But either way, um, the, the first phase about the um, acknowledge stage is to acknowledge that there could be something there that we're not realizing. Don't make assumptions. Mm-hmm. We have some kind of, uh, we need to analyze the situation before we go further. So it's like the acknowledge stage is to make a pause for you to stop uh-huh. and think. The ask stage is then to say, find out more. So the second okay. A is we need to find out more. Find out from the family. Find out who you're from the person you're disagreeing with. What really is going on? Why are you thinking that? What do you do at home? Um, and It's about both sides also being prepared to listen to each other. Mm -hmm. And then the third step, the acknowledge, I'm sorry, the adapt stage is to take what we learned in that second step about from asking Mm -hmm. and try to find that common ground, find a, try to find where we have agreement. Um, How are we willing to be flexible and compromise? Um, uh, is the, are we at the school willing to change some of our practices to accommodate something that way something might be done at home? Um, and again, always acknowledge that sometimes there are things we can't change, right? Sure. And agree to disagree. But um, that's kind of the process we've found that's useful in working through some of these conflicts mm-hmm. is to try this strategy of using the three A's. I love it. And uh, something, I'm a really visual person. So the image of a third space is very helpful to me uh, because you, uh, you can have an image of people being entrenched on sides, you know, in their own space and building walls or staying in that space or protecting your space. And the idea of opening up and creating a new space, I think that's a really beautiful image. So I love the third space idea. Thank you for sharing that. Great, great. Okay, so what I was thinking about some other ideas of yours that you just have some some nuggets in in both of these books and in the the words that you share in sessions that are just so practical and and useful immediately for anyone, but for leaders as well. I often project myself into the equation in your work, my experiences as a leader. Yeah, you know, I I had an experience. My first director position, I was. Um, I had a degree, which is why I was hired, but I had never taught preschool. I had been teaching kindergarten and I entered uh, a program that had a board of directors and and three other three teachers that I was supervising. And I, I knew nothing. And it was um, a really rough experience, rough learning experience for me. And some of the things I remember most from it, when I look back, um, was that I was just surviving. So your title from survive to thrive, I was, I was in survival mode. And I remember just being so fearful that people would think I wasn't competent. 
at that job. And, um, and that's about all I remember very well. It's kind of a blur. Uh, then I, I made a move to a new town. So um, left that behind. And several years later, I had another opportunity to direct a program. And I had a lot more experience and a lot more confidence and things went more smoothly. But that feeling of isolation and that I, I really didn't know a, a single person I could reach out to who could help me make decisions or think through things, or I didn't think I did. And I felt that if I was, would approach the teachers with questions that would imply I didn't know what I was doing. And so I made a lot, a lot of rookie mistakes during that time. Um, so when I, when I think about those times and I think about particularly the from survive to thrive book, I feel like it's what, that's what myself needed at that time. Like that right. book would have been the, the best gift <laughs> for me because it just guides you through so many things um, and so much of, of directing programs is about just daily getting through all the tasks. But then there's this whole other really important layer about relationships and um, community and all of those things. And, and it's really hard to juggle those things. Um, so I, so some of the, your ideas have just been especially helpful. And there's one that I love. I'm in love with this idea. And so are my colleagues uh, at the Professional Learning Collaborative. And you call it rotated neglect. I, had, I was going to call that out at some point. I, I love it. <laughs> Could you explain to yes. people rotated neglect? Everyone think, yeah, says that's when they think of me. They always talk about that. All my former <laughs> uh, you know, teachers, uh, you know, back in, back in the Boston area, they are, where it says, oh, Debbie and a rotated neglect. Yes. Well, the concept to me is, you know, we always talk about balancing, but I think all of us are always trying to do so much. And it's always balancing means you're adding more, right? How do I do this and this and this? Yes. And we feel guilty, right? We had, so that's, the problem with using that kind of thinking about it that way. So yeah, I thought about came up with this idea of rotating neglect. It's not <laughs> how much you can add on and balance, uh -huh. but it's what can you take away? And it's okay to take it away if you rotate what you're taking away. Right. And so that's where that, <laughs> I don't know. I, I have to say uh, people. Yeah. Anyway, I, it is what I, I'm I, I'm, I like that you found it too, that resonates yes. you because people know me personally, you know, who have, over the years I've worked with, I've always said, Debbie, that was the, one of the best things yes. um, on that. And I think the, the correlation with that is also feeling comfortable saying no. Yeah. And we tend to be, a lot of people in our field tend to be people pleasers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so are we saying yes, 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 and just gets piled on. But, yeah. you know, that used to be the first, one of the questions I asked when I was hiring staff, uh -huh. how good are you at saying no? And what I was most impressed with is if people were at least acknowledged that it was hard for them or, you know, the right. kind of, not just saying, you know, in an interview, oh yeah, I'm good at that. <laughs> you know, I wanted to hear, did that, was it yeah. hard or was it not? Did they get it? Um, but I actually, that's one of my interview questions. <laughs> how good, yeah. are you, how good are you at saying no? Yeah, that, that, that's wonderful. And I, I love, um, it's very freeing this idea of rotating neglect because, it's not implying that you're dropping the ball forever. It's about being really intentional. You're going to come back around. Um, and also we're, we can't do all of it. So it, it removes the feeling of failure and we can let go of that and just say, okay, there's some things I'm not going to do as well. I can't attend to right now in the same way. So I'm just going to set those aside. I will come back to them. And then you just be more intentional about when you do that. So Right. And that also includes your personal life. 
you know, not just all the things you're juggling in your job as director or as a teacher, but, you know, how do I include, when I'm, is this the week I'm neglecting getting my run in or getting my exercise sure. in or what, or, you know, but you have to make sure that you include that the whole piece of the pie. Yeah. We're talking about this. Yes. I love that. Oh, I appreciate Nikki, you sharing so much of also your personal experience as a director. Cause I, I personally, one of the things I love about something like this is that, you know, we, I'm, I'm always learning and I'm learning from you what you know, what your experience like, can I throw back that question about identity to you? Sure. How, how has your identity influenced your role as a director? Oh, that's or as a um, professional. Yeah, I think as a director, that's especially interesting to think about. Um, as a director, I still, uh, I mostly felt like I was a teacher <laughs> in a, uh, for years. And honestly, the truth is, after a couple of director positions, I was more comfortable to be a pedagogical leader. Mm -hmm. um, and then I fell into a more comfortable space there. So I really aligned um, my family is a family of educators. So my mother was a kindergarten teacher. My father was a teacher for years and then a, a school district superintendent. Um, I have siblings that are teachers. My grandmother was a teacher in um, a one-room schoolhouse in mm -hmm. Wyoming, in rural Wyoming. Um, and so uh, schools just felt like the, they were home to me. And um, that that has really powerfully shaped my perspectives. And it has also led to, um, I've had to really make an effort to understand that others don't feel that comfortable in schools. And others have had different experiences. My father was my principal when I was in elementary school. I used to get snacks from the lunchroom um, because the ladies there loved my dad. And they've, you know, so I, schools were a place where I felt completely welcome. And I felt very secure in that space. And so I've had to um, really try to listen and understand different experiences, particularly from families who, um, you know, they have their child in your program and they just are, un they're, they're not at ease. And it comes from those ghosts that you said that their experiences in schools. And um, so that's just one piece of it, small piece of my identity to talk about here. But I feel like that has really shaped my view. And um, I've come much later to understand what a privilege that was that I experienced that so many other people don't experience that kind of privilege and that an entire institution felt like home to me. And that same institution can feel like a very unsafe place for a lot of other people. Right. So. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I agree completely. Um, obviously it's, it's not only what our own school experiences were like, but even what is, what was the role of our families in school? Mm -hmm. Some people might've had, you know, so they see, oh, family involvement is very important because my family did this and this and another experiences, right? The role of families is very different from them in school. It's very separate. And it's not yes. about it being good or bad, but it's, what you experience. So then when you're in the classroom or you, you, we bring all, it's not just our, what we feel as teachers, but yes. you know, what was our parents role in our <laughs> education? So, so many layers. Yeah. yeah complex. That's that it complexity. Is. Yes. Yes. Um, you know, there's something else, uh, another nugget that I want to share with everybody that I, I just loved. You have, uh, like I said, I'm very visual and I loved what you said. Um, in the intro to the Leading Anti-Bias Early Childhood Programs book, you, there's this beautiful piece, listeners, where the authors just share about themselves. And I felt like I knew Debbie because I read that before I ever actually met Debbie. Um, <laughs> but you said this about leaders. 
the leader provides the vision and direction, but wants the motivation for change to bubble up, not just trickle down. I believe in a collaborative style of leadership and consensus building. And I love that. So you can you just talk about, we want motivation for change to bubble up and yes. not trickle down. Yes. So we say it's, it, it has to be, it actually has to be both top down and bubble up. Okay. You could have, you want, you need, you don't want it just top down. You want it to bubble up, but you also sure. need the leader with the vision and bringing it all together. So I often have said that both of those are very important. I mean, okay. in most cases, you think of leadership as, as power, but I think it's really about building partnerships. With uh -huh. uh, I also use the term facilitative leadership. Facilitative <laughs> leadership is leadership in partnership with others. So it could be partnership with my staff, my sure. teachers, partnership with families. So how do I bring that together and kind of change that paradigm where we think of it just being top down? Uh, mm -hmm. Bubble up is also, to me, means it's not just, um, it takes time and the mm -hmm. bubbles are coming up at different times at different points. Yeah. Um, and what that means as a new leader, when you go into it, if, whether it's a new job for you or you're in your same program, so you're moving mm -hmm. into a different role, which many leaders, often you're a teacher in that, and then you become the director of the same program, or you're a leader in a different program, always start out with listening and hearing, not coming in and say, well, I'm going to do all this. Um, uh -huh. And the other piece for me, because I took this particular, I'm thinking of my job at Elliot Pearson. I took the job where people already knew I had this passion around anti-bias education. I was coming in with that, probably uh -huh. hired for part of that. Um, but I didn't want my staff to do anti-bias work because I was the boss, because mm -hmm. I told them to do. It had to come from them. I wanted it to come from them. So the work I actually did was how to um, empower staff to think about it and spending a lot of time creating the culture which allows people to talk about ideas, disagree, share, share thoughts, get, yeah. let them take, take the lead on things. Even if you know, it would have been easier for me to do it, a concrete example I think is we developed this frequently asked question, a fact about anti-bias education. Mm -hmm. And um, actually I did this with families too. We decided to do it. I said, let's see what the questions families have, what you have, what we all have. So we generated over a period of time a list of questions from families. Got them, in, you know, we generated that in many different ways. Uh -huh. And then we had this list of questions. So then the question was, well, who's going to answer this? Now, we've been easy as the director. Well, I know what to, what I want everyone to know. I could just write them out. Sure. I intentionally, we were not going to do that. There was a committee that was formed of families and teachers. And they were charged with creating this, um, uh, creating the fact. We're we're going to work on it, and it was done over a course of a year. And mm -hmm. so when I and when I tell the story, you know, people, as they said, it would have been much easier <laughs> for me just to write all those answers. Here's what we want, and and, 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 yes. and it, it actually came out. Obviously, it had my input, or you know, I looked at it, and we knew sure. what we wanted. But it was more the process. So that's how you get buy-in. That's how you make it happen, that it's their work. It wasn't my work. You know, the other thing yeah. having these books is, you know, the best leaders, it's when the people, everyone else is doing it. And you're, you're, <laughs> and then yes. they're getting, it's their work. It's our work. 
we're uh-huh. doing it together. So this idea of facilitative leadership, uh, sharing power, moving from power to empowerment. I mean, whatever metaphor works for you, I'd say. Sure. Yes. <laughs> but, um, we talk, uh, you know, I do think that's the style of leadership uh, that uh, I embrace. We embrace in these books. Mm-hmm. Um, and cu- so it's really about cultivating the culture for this shared responsibility for the program goals. Yeah, I love that. I really love that. And that that leads, there's there's another piece I wanted to touch on because my favorite, well, my favorite chapters, I think, in both books are about partnerships with parents, partnerships mm-hmm. with families. Yes. Um, and uh, they're just so meaty in both books. And um, so I was just, I just wanted to give you some time to share with our listeners and and leaders and teachers, what are what do you think the keys are to creating strong partnerships with families? To see our families as real strengths and partners. Uh, the traditional way of thinking of homeschool partnerships, right, is that the sc- the school are the experts and the families mm-hmm. are the consumers. Mm-hmm. I'd like to see that more as uh, more re- reciprocity that we're learning from each other. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the responsibility to set that tone, though, of responsibility is from the school, uh-huh. from the teachers, the, the, the directors. So it's our job to create the culture that allows for reciprocity. I wouldn't. Right. So I think that's a, one of the key pieces of developing these partnerships. Mm-hmm. The other piece is about the concept of funds of knowledge, of learning from families. Yeah. You know, all our children come to school with strengths, and those strengths come from their families, their knowledge, their skills. Um, I think to really see that that. Families have so much, their children are coming with the strengths they have from their families. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one way to do that, what does that look concretely, is to ask families right in the beginning. Yeah. You know, whatever intake forms you do, your first conference or uh-huh. however, however, you, every program does it a little bit differently. You know, what are the strengths your child has? Embrace that. Have, have them learn from them. Listen carefully. Have them share what their hopes and dreams are. Um, and how they see their child. Mm-hmm. Uh, so really to take that time to get to know the child through the family's lens. Uh, some, fam- mm-hmm. some programs I know do home visits, and that's one, and also to take off the pressure of being in a school setting. Um, yeah. I think we, um, not all programs do that, and I think there are always cautions with that too, because some families' experiences with home visits could be negative, not positive. Sure. Sure. But the idea is also taking it off sometimes the school grounds, you know, having a, a conversation um, in, a, in, a, in a playground or in a community space uh-huh. to learn from each other. I think that's another great way. Uh, but of course, doing that also just through phone calls, conferences, um, through having forms that elicit, we welcome your knowledge, your expertise, your culture, your language. Um, all the th- all the things that you you bring, and I, I, I guess the one other thing I'll say on this is also about that we see family participation as a menu. There's not one way for families to participate, right? Right. The traditional way is being on the you know maybe being on the advisory board, uh, doing fundraising, volunteering on a field trip or in a classroom. Sure. But what about just you know 
your child comes to school happy, dressed for the weather, it yeah. has had uh, is has had a good night's sleep, had a place to do their homework. I salute you. I yep. I appreciate those families. So when we show that as the as the educators, whether you're the teacher or the leader. So again, the leader's job is to set this tone that and then your teachers will follow. Yeah. I love that. I do think we still have a lot of work to do on part truly partnering with families. Um, and I think some of it comes from that. It's a, it's a positive intention, which is we want to identify if there's needs and help meet those. But that deficit perspective that we tend to only seek out information from families and about them and their children to find out problems so that then we can fix those uh, is really problematic because we miss all of that incredible good stuff that you just shared that that is not only important for us to just appreciate and understand families, but that's the place to tap into for curriculum. That's the place to link to for children's learning. And so we're just missing really big opportunities for growth if we if we don't shift our lens and open up our minds to seeing those funds of knowledge. So I'm really glad that you touched on that. And that's a piece that we're going to be working on in the collaborative in this year um, it, with programs is how can we become better partners with families? So so I'm excited Great. about that. Yeah. Um, well, we're running short of time. There's a, there's a million more things I'd like to talk to you about. But I and another thing just interested me, and um, it was uh, reading Survive to Thrive. What I know from you from that story is you were approached to write that book. And, um, and knowing that, uh, I think it's just fascinating what you decided to do when you wrote it. So uh, from what I understand in the book, you were approached to write the book because of your expertise on leadership. And your response was to not write the book yourself, but to reach out to leaders across the country yes. and have them tell you, have, have them inform the work. So will you just talk a little bit about why you did that? Because you could have just written that book yourself for sure, Debbie. <laughs> so why did you approach it in that way? Well, because... An important part of being a leader is reading the context of your program, and every program is unique and different. So we felt it was really important to get as many different voices in uh, and learn to inform. I mean, we wrote the book in one voice, but to sure. inform our understanding and experiences, having examples, having the what were the questions leaders had across the country, rural, urban, east, west, north, mm -hmm. south. Um, was a key piece and also wanting it from both a veteran perspective, myself and being in the field for a long time. Uh -huh. And my co-author, Iris, uh, was just beginning out as a leader. In fact, the, the great story about that was when, when NAYC asked me if I would want to write this book. And they did say, you can have a co-author. We discussed um, the idea of having a veteran and a beginning leader to do this mm -hmm. together. And um, Iris had been my student uh, at Tufts and had been a teacher in my program. And when she graduated, she opened her own uh, program called the Henry Frost Children's Program. Uh -huh. So it was a wonderful journey to do it together. It was rewarding for us to do it together and kind of take our um, next step as being mentor mentee to being co-authors. Yeah. And one thing we learned from doing it and interviewing, to, you know, working with lots of other people, meeting other people is again, you never stop learning, whether mm -hmm. this is your first year being a director or your 30th year being a director. Um, so yeah, and I think the other challenge of doing that, this, that project was we were given a limit, 160 pages or so. <laughs> I said, what? 
make it comprehensive, <laughs> make it make it based on uh, research and theory, but practical that a leader could pick up any time. So yeah, you know, we tried. It was hard. That was the biggest challenge for <laughs> for us. Well, I can say that you pulled it off. It's I'm <laughs> amazed you were able to do it. That's the first thing I thought when I read it was that I can't believe how much information is jam packed into this resource and in a way that's super approachable for people. I can't say enough. If you're if you're a new director, this is a must. And if you're an experienced director, this will just broaden your understanding in ways you have not thought of before. So I really encourage everybody to get it. In fact, if you want a copy of it, you can just reach out to your professional learning facilitator and we can make that happen for you for free. So just be aware. Um, okay, just a couple of other things and then we'll wrap this up, Debbie. Um, there's one other concept I thought was beautiful in the book. Um, it's your wisdom at the end, actually, in the leading anti-bias book. Um, and please tell me if I say this wrong, but it's the concept of man, man, lay. Man, man, lie. Man, man, lie. I man, obliterated man, that. That's all right. Man, that's man, lie. Well, that's in Mandarin. You could be. That's all right. Sure. <laughs> and I just think that this this was it's useful for me. It's a and and I just want to share this because I think any director, or anyone who listens to this right now, who is feeling like change is not coming quickly enough, or you're feeling really unsettled that you're not where you want to be, I think this is a beautiful concept. So would you talk to us a little bit about sure. Mon Mon Lai? Right. So literally in Chinese, that means slowly, slowly it will come. Mm -hmm. And that's the point that we, it, it, it doesn't happen overnight, but if you take one step at a time, be intentional about that, that change does happen. But we have to be patient and appreciate the small movement that leads to the bigger change. So it's really that concept, the small movement that leads to bigger change. That's beautiful. I love it. It's good for all of us to think about. I have two more questions for you because we focus on professional learning. I wanted to know what's something, what's one of the newest things you've learned that you're excited about? Well, it's about making a film in a pandemic. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, wow. Yes, I was fortunate um, uh, a couple of years ago now, probably whatever, um, <laughs> that we received some uh, funding from a private foundation. So my good colleague, John Nimmo, and I uh, decided that what we need is a new uh, film on anti-bias education that could be used for teacher education. Um, and... Mm -hmm. So that's, we've been working on that, but it's a film that we didn't want to have any experts on it. It's a film where it's really no talking heads. It's voices uh -huh. of teachers. We've had the opportunity to visit and film in different classrooms. Oh, wow. And it's the voice, you, you see vignettes from the classroom, and then it's teachers reflecting on those experiences. Mm -hmm. No talking heads on it. Louise German Sparks is one of our senior advisors for it, but none of mm -hmm. us are on the film at all. Uh -huh. I'm so excited. We're hope I'm hoping it will be uh, completed in early uh, 2021. But our Excellent. filming time, our year for filming was February, March, and April of this oh, year. No. <laughs> so we got in three out of six when we had planned even, well, we were Definitely want to do three. We wanted. We were planning for six to eight days of filming. Uh -huh. We got in three total, oh. but <laughs> we're making the film. We're, so uh, that's wow. learning how to do that and being creative. And actually, in August, we were able to go to a school where we were able to. They weren't gonna. They were open, but they didn't allow. It was one of the schools we wanted. They wouldn't allow us to go back 
for us to go down with my filmmaker. Sure. But rather, there was a, a videographer in their bubble in the school. So we mm -hmm. actually, I was doing it remotely through Zoom, directing, and my filmmaker wow. uh, that we had hired here is also from Seattle. So we mm -hmm. were kind of like doing this on Zoom, but the actual filming was done by someone in their in their you know whatever in their bubble and uh -huh. now of course we're doing all the work of doing the editing and piecing it all together and that's the wow. actually uh, filmmakers fantastic at this so i'm excited that's what that's something new i've never made a film before yeah that's <laughs> amazing workshops but this is going to be new and yeah i look forward to sharing it with uh with you in wyoming do, do you know the title yet does it have a name uh, it's going to be um well, the working title, Reflecting okay. on Anti-Bias Education in Practice. Nice. That's wonderful. That just speaks volumes about how you always approach your work. I love that you're elevating voices, elevating other voices. And I was thinking back on your discussion about what you did with Survive to Thrive. That's just another perfect example of the more voices and the more diversity we embrace, the stronger the product. So that's really beautiful. Okay, I have one final question. I thought we could both answer it. Okay. I, although I wrote it, I've had a chance to think about it, okay. but I was thinking about my, what would I say to my young director self back in that first director job right now? Like what would, would be my one piece of advice, practical advice, not just, you'll be great. You can do it, but just something real, like what do I wish I had known and done? So my piece of, of advice to my beginning director self would be, to focus on getting to know the teachers and families. Just not focus on trying to look competent so much and spend my time with people trying to build relationships with them. So that's based on my own mistakes. That's my advice for myself. What advice would you give your new director self from back in the day? Um, to be patient. Uh-huh. Yeah. And to... Um, focus on one aspect at a time. Nice. That's amazing. So we hope maybe our advice to ourselves will be useful for somebody else as well. <laughs> Debbie, thank you so much. This has been amazing. Oh, thank you so much, Nikki. It's a pleasure. I really enjoy uh, our conversation together mm -hmm. and look forward to continuing uh, learning from Wyoming. Yes, we're gonna keep our partnership going as long as we can. Thanks, Debbie. And thanks, everyone, for joining us on Voices from the Village. This podcast is made possible with support from the Federal Preschool Development Grant and is produced by the University of Wyoming Early Childhood Outreach Network and is directed and edited by Bryce Tugwell. Thank you so much.